Hey, it's Cher Ross. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from, from Vixen. Vixen, and you're listening to Play That Rock and Roll with Joe K. And you're gonna keep listening because he plays awesome rock and roll! Keep rocking with Joe K. about this, aren't you? I do not need! All right. Love and marriage, love and marriage. Hey, <laughs> Did you miss like me? With every bullet so far. <laughs> I don't get all up in your business when you upgrade your bazooms. That's because my bazooms don't put anyone's life in danger. Done broke my spine. Nice rap, though. Thank you, Scrappy. Right into this world. All alone. What the hell did you do? Same thing you did. Nailed some little tart from Nevada. Like I don't have enough shit. Who's out of my ears? You gotta go and do this. Should have thought of that before your dick went on a cheerleader hunt. Hey, I didn't tell her to come here. But she's here. And it's not my fault. And it's not my pussy. That's why I'm saying. Gotta live this life. Gotta live this world. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Joseph K., and like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. So you just heard a couple of clips from some famous TV shows like Married with Children, Futurama, and Sons of Anarchy, all of which featuring the famous TV actress Katie Seagal. Now, I imagine you're thinking, well, what is a actor doing on a show about classic rock? Well, although Katie Seagal is by far most famous for being an actor, she has actually had a very long-standing music career alongside her acting. It's just not as well-known. And to be fair, to be as well-known as her acting career is a pretty tall order. She's had an incredibly successful TV career. In fact, uh, I saw ads for a new show called Rebel, which she has the lead role. So her star has continued to rise deep into her career. And the acting aspect of it outshines the music part. Well, hopefully today we can do a little bit to rectify that. So we're going to talk about not only the albums she's put out, but also some of the stories and connections that she has to the greater world of classic rock. Stories that involve the Beatles, Kiss, Bob Dylan, uh, Molly Hatchet. (laughs) Uh, We're going to get to all that and more. So if you're a little hesitant on the subject matter for this one, a little unsure about Katie Seagal as a classic rock subject, I would really encourage you to stick around because we're going to listen to some great music and we're going to talk about some great stories. 
I'm sure there's going to be something that's going to catch your attention through this. So without further ado, join me on this exploration of the musical career of Katie Seagal. Black is black. January 19th, 1954 in Los Angeles. She was born to a bit of a showbiz family. Her father worked as a director in Hollywood and her mother was a bit of a musician. In fact, the first sentence of chapter one of Katie's 2017 memoirs, Grace Notes, reads, when I was 10, my mother taught me to play the guitar. So right off the bat, that sets the tone of her book and Therefore, her story, music was her first artistic love, not acting. Through much of her life, she sort of had the anti-acting bug. She resisted getting into acting, despite several people in her life trying to push her into it. She really wanted to become a star by performing music. And that started when she was very young. One of the first fun little stories about her is that when she was a child, she was actually caught on camera by a newsreel at some event that the Beatles were making an appearance at. The cameras caught her screaming for George while she was a young girl. It's very cute. You can find it on YouTube. And I just think it's interesting because she is literally a documented part of Beatlemania. So being a fan of the Beatles, it makes sense that she was also a fan of the Rolling Stones. Being a fan of the Beatles and the Stones, it makes sense that she was also a big fan of the blues, as the blues, obviously, is a, the primary influence to both the Beatle and the Stones, and she loved all sorts of 60s blues artists, including someone we'll talk about later that she got a chance to sing with. One of the great little stories out of her memoirs is about how she snuck into a blues club at age 15, not nearly old enough to be in the club, to see Willie Dixon. And she and her friend, you know, saw Willie perform. And then after the show, they stepped out into the alley for a cigarette. And it just so happened that Willie stepped out at the same time. And she talked to him for a bit and told him that she was also a singer. And he said to her, quote, you'll get there, girl. Just keep doing what you love. And I shared that because I think that's a nice little story of encouragement from one of her heroes. Willie Dixon, on all accounts that I've come across, seems to be a great guy. And here's just another one of those examples. So like I was saying earlier, she was pressured into acting as a young woman. She was pressured at first by her father as he was a director and he had a lot of connections in Hollywood. He wanted to get her various acting jobs specifically so she could get a union card and have health insurance. So she took a very minor role on the TV show Columbo just to get in the acting union and to get that coverage that her father was making such a big deal about. But after that, she resisted acting for several years as it just wasn't her passion. Her passion was music. So instead of taking her father up on all the connections he had in Hollywood, she declined other acting gigs and instead took a job at a restaurant. At some point in the mid-70s, Katie started working at the Great American Food and Beverage Company, which was a novelty restaurant where servers had to sing or dance or perform something along with serving food. This is very 70s. To me, this sounds absolutely insufferable, but <laughs> uh, out in Hollywood, I guess 
that worked. A couple of famous people worked there. In her book, Katie says that Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo and all sorts of film soundtracks was a waiter there. And Patty Davis, Ronald Reagan's daughter, also worked there as well. Katie said she liked the job because it gave her a chance to sing and get paid for it, and also to make connections with other artists who were looking to get their music career started. Now, at some point in 1976, the band Kiss visited the restaurant, and they were seated at Katie's table. Uh, They asked Katie to sing them a Beatles song, which she did, and of course, at the end, Gene Simmons asked Katie out on a date, which she took him up on. In fact, she dated Gene Simmons on and off for a couple of years, and he helped her get her foot in the door of the music industry. She appears on his debut solo album. Specifically, she sings backup on See You in Your Dreams. So let's take a listen to that. It's kind of tough, but if you really focus, you can you can sort of hear it. But the point being is that she and Jean were actually really close, and according to her book, she said she actually wanted to marry him. Um, and when she brought the idea up to Jean, he laughed, which of course is very in character. After he uh, made it clear he wouldn't marry her, they broke up for good. So she wrote about this little affair in her memoirs, Grace Notes. And because it's sort of a juicy story, this made the rounds in the tabloids. And there's all sorts of articles that did a write-up about the, the little section in her book that references Jean. Well, apparently, this annoyed Jean's daughter, Sophie Simmons, who, while appearing as a guest on the Allegedly podcast, said this i know that katie seagal just wrote a book and she said mm-hmm. uh, we had an affair and things like and when you hear things about his sex life and stuff like that in the past and groupies or whatever does that phase you anymore did I it mean, ever phase you no not really it I, was just kind of like i feel like also i feel like it's it's no one's business really like i i mean if katie wants to write a book about her life cool but like to write about someone and then have it affect their family, I feel like, is a really kind of low place to go to try to sell a book. Yes. And she should probably look at her own family, I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Before pointing fingers, because... That's a good point. Other people could write books, too. Congrats to the one groupie who thought they got ahead, (laughs) but apparently didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Sophie... Jean's sex life is not actually private. And it's not private because he has made it public. He loves to kiss and tell, okay? (laughs) And um, you know why I know he loves to kiss and tell? Because I have Jean's autobiography, okay? And if we go to page 154, he writes, Katie Seagal who I saw for a short time around the same time I was seeing Cher and the two other girls from the group with no name sang on a few others. He's talking about the recording session for his uh, debut solo album. But he mentions Katie by name 
and not only says that he was dating her, but he was dating her at the same time he was uh, dating Cher. So uh, very obviously not exclusive and totally consistent with exactly what Katie wrote in her book. So uh, I don't know what uh, got in Sophie's craw uh, so much so that she felt she had to say something nasty like this. And she should probably look at her own family, I'm just saying. Yeah. 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 For pointing fingers because... That's a good point. Other people could write books, too. Especially the part where she says she should probably look at her own family before pointing fingers because other people could write books, too. Well, another person did write a book, and it's the exact same story. So I guess Sophie didn't read her dad's, uh, her dad's memoirs, which is sort of funny because, of course, it's uh, dedicated to her. <laughs> but regarding the quote, she should probably look at her own family... I gotta say, I don't know enough about, like, L.A. gossip or celebrity culture to even guess at what Sophie's implying there. I, I don't know what she's hinting at. But it should be clear that if you read Katie's memoirs, the story does not go after the Simmons family at all. So that's another thing I just would say to Sophie, like, what are you even talking about? There's nothing malicious in that book, nothing malicious at Gene. In fact, it's written in a very, I think, a complimentary manner uh, when it comes to the section about Gene. So I don't know. I just found Sophie's comments to be particularly nasty and unnecessary. And it just gives me the impression that Sophie is a Hollywood brat. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, she's a nasty person from a nasty family. So, in defense of Katie Seagal, fuck Sophie Simmons and fuck this guy, too. Wow, I got way more angry about that than I needed to be. Moving on. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, so going back to Katie's connection to Gene. To his credit, he did help her career. He helped her get her first record deal. Katie and some other servers from that great American food and beverage company restaurant signed with a label as a singing group called The Group With No Name. She signed on the same label that Gene was on, and it was probably because of Gene's influence that uh, they were able to get their foot in their door, and they were able to put out an album. The liner notes on this album tell the band's story accurately, and they don't mention Gene by name, but it does say mutual friend, and that mutual friend is um, referring to Gene. So let's start with the name. The group with no name. Awful name, right? Very 70s, but in like the worst way. Well, Katie knew it, and she told Rolling Stone in 2013, that was such a lame name. Nobody could come up with something good, and somebody mentioned the no-name idea to Neil Bogart. That's the executive who signed them. And he thought it was great. I thought it was ridiculous. But it was a good band. (laughs) I don't mean to be rude, but I don't know if this was a good band. (laughs) Um, Their first and only album was called Moon Over Brooklyn, and it was released in 1976, with a single called Baby Love. And Katie was not the lead vocalist, but she did sing lead on a section of that song, so I'm going to play the clip of her on the group with no names debut single, Baby Love, How Could You Leave Me? Take a listen. I remember to be mean so early but this is incredibly lame (laughs) this is the just sappiest soft rock of the 70s and it does absolutely nothing for me i mean there is a flute solo on this song it reminds me of acts like captain and tennille or the osmonds or like the starland vocal group like really really bad soft rock 70s and you know maybe there's some people out there who like it but it is absolutely not for me Now, the next single that was released was called Get Out in the Sunshine. That was co-written by Katie. And the last single on the album is called Roll On, Brother. And Katie doesn't sing lead vocals, but I would say this is not the best, but the least bad song. So take a listen to Roll On, Brother, which was the last single. Roll on, brother. Life is but a dream. 
Yeah, so this album was a flop. I would say its biggest claim to fame is that the title track was covered by Anne Murray on her 1980s Somebody's Waiting album. So, and unless you're a diehard Anne Murray fan, I'm sure that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. In Katie's book, she writes, Through a combination of a lack of record sales and band infighting, we split up. And that's basically the whole story uh, for the group with no name. Except this one little clip of when Katie was a guest on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno in May 1993. Jay actually digs up an old LP copy of this album and uh, teases her a little bit about it. It's very funny. Take a quick listen to that. Or should I say another album? Uh, yeah, actually, I did make another record a long time ago. A long you know, time I ago. I happen to have a copy oh, of God. it right here. <laughs> I thought you might. The group with no name, it's called. Yeah. I, actually, I like the picture on the back. Get the shot the front oh, there first. <laughs> That's me and the white. Looking yes. very sultry. Oh, gosh. Oh, this is great. That was a long time ago. This yeah. is like a 70s young man. Da, 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 da. Well, it was sort of that. It was actually sort of a, it was a vocal group. And mm -hmm. um, actually, it was a really good band. It just, uh just didn't last. I think the name might have had something to do with it. The group with no name. That yes. was, uh, they couldn't think of a name for the band, so up until the day they released the record, they still didn't know, or until the day they marketed. <laughs> so they thought that was a good idea. So obviously Katie's a little embarrassed there, but uh, she laughs long, she's good sport about it, and I think she's proud of the music. You know, I was harsh about it, but it's just music that isn't for me. I, I'm sure she looks back on the music fondly. But in any case... Jokes aside, this was a dud of a record, and she would not be signed to another major label for quite some time. Now, the experience she got on the album and the connections she made in the band actually got her set up for her next gig, which was in late 1977 or early 78 as a backup singer for Bob Dylan, which is, uh, that's a big resume builder right there. I believe it was one of the other girls in the group with no name that was uh, signed with Bob and she got Katie to come in and try out and he hired her as well. Now she actually only sang with Bob for about two months during some tour rehearsals because she and I guess some other people in the band were fired before the tour actually started. Now why she was fired is actually a little unclear. She has a story that she usually tells in interviews, but I'm actually privy to a little bit of information that hints at something else. So I'll tell you what she normally says in interviews, and then we'll talk briefly uh, about something I was witness to that uh, might speak to a different motivation for her being fired. What she normally says is that she was fired because she was doing a bad job and way too intimidated and too young um, and just overwhelmed and, you know, didn't cut it, which is perfectly reasonable. Katie says the low points of her singing career was being fired by Bob Dylan, not for her lack of singing talents, but for acting too starstruck and giddy around him. I was so uh, starstruck at that time, I have to tell you. I'm, I'm not usually that impressed, but with mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, it was... It was hard for me to do anything but just sort of stand there frozen in the room. You say he fired you. Was that because you were so starstruck around him? Well, that's what I attribute it to. Do you uh, have any idea why you were fired? 
Well, no, I don't. I, I mean, in my mind, it's because I'm sure I was doing a terrible job. I was so intimidated. You know, this is what would happen. We would rehearse, and then we'd sit in a room, and he'd play the tape back, like, right. from rehearsing. So if you made a mistake, he wouldn't really, like, say anything. He'd just look at you. <laughs> and you'd just oh you'd my God. Be like, yeah. like this big. Oh. So that was a little intimidating. How often? So it's sort of weird, but I guess it's understandable. She just wasn't ready for prime time. I mean, backing up Bob Dylan, that is a gigantic gig, so you have to be uh, ready for the spotlight. And it's perfectly reasonable to think that she just wasn't at that point in her career. And if I hadn't stumbled across a couple of other little pieces that I'm going to talk about here, I would leave it at that. But... I saw Katie Seagal in concert in 2013, and she said something to the crowd that hints at a different reason of why Bob fired her, okay? So from here on out, for this next section, for all you lawyers listening, uh, let me be very clear. This is uh, allegedly, okay? Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. I am not saying this happened for sure. I'm just repeating something I witnessed and some information I found online. Okay, uh, take all of this with a grain of salt. If you don't believe me, hey, that's fine. Okay, I'm not saying this is fact. This is just some information I came across, and it's interesting, so I will share it here. Okay, but again, allegedly. <laughs> all right, so I saw Katie Seagal in concert in April 2013, and most of the music she performed were cover songs. One of the songs she sang was Bob Dylan's It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. And before getting into that song, she said to the crowd that she was fired by the guy who wrote this next song for not being more willing. Okay? Now, she never mentioned Bob by name, but she said the guy who wrote this next song, and it was Takes a Lot to Laugh, Takes a Train to Cry. And the phrase I remember that stick, sticks out in my head was, she said, wasn't more willing. I think the implication there is that Bob had a little bit of a crush on Katie, and it was uh, not mutual. And maybe that was why he didn't want her coming on the road with her. Now, if it was just my memory, I would leave this part out. Uh, but I did stumble across something that sort of echoes it. My experience seeing her in concert is corroborated by this article by a gossip columnist named Hearn Christopher Jr. on KC Confidential. Now, I'll tell you straight up, it's not a really a credible source. This is just a gossip site. And, you know, I wouldn't put a lot of stock into it except for this one paragraph which echoes almost exactly what I experienced at a show on the same tour that they're writing about. Okay, so he writes, I just couldn't go there, Seagal told the crowd. When you figure out who wrote this song, you'll know why. I just couldn't go there. He wasn't my type. Whereupon, Seagal launched into the Dylan penned, It takes a lot to laugh, it takes a train to cry. <laughs> That's... More or less exactly what I witnessed when I saw Katie Seagal in concert. I beg anyone watching or listening, if you've seen Katie Seagal in concert and she told a similar story, please 
post that in the comments below. Tell me I'm not crazy. I, I don't think I generated this in my head. I don't think this came out of nowhere. I'm, I'm sure I remember it as such. And then, you know, this gossip site wrote something very similar. Now, I will tell you, if you find the actual link I'm citing here, the rest of this article is straight garbage. So I don't really want to lend any sense of credibility to it except for this one paragraph that mirrors my experience. Now, my last little bit on this point is that she appeared on Andy Cohen's Sirius XM show in 2016, and she said this. Yeah, but here's my Bob Dylan story because it's really good. I only worked with him for four months, <laughs> uh -huh. and I never made it on the tour because he fired me before the tour. Why? I just rehearsed with him. Well, I have my own reasons why I yeah. think he did, but... Um, uh, actually, I think the the truth was I was doing a really terrible job because I was right. so starstruck. I was 18. Okay, did you catch that? She says, I have my own reasons why I think he did. And then she pivots to, like, her official story, you know? I think, well, at least you could make the connection that she could be referencing what I saw her say on stage and what this uh, gossip site said that she said on stage but in any case this is all just speculation i'll admit this is pretty irresponsible on my end but it it was something that stuck out in my memory and you know i think if there is truth to it it should be talked about but i'll tell you if i find any evidence that disproves this in any way i will absolutely correct the record on this but this is just again something i experienced firsthand and a couple of other little pieces online uh, that I've collected and put together. So take it all with a grain of salt. So fresh off the Dylan firing, she was a free agent, if you will, once again in 1978. And her next gig was actually with Bette Midler. She was one of Bette's famous harlettes, which were the backup singers for Bette's band. And she toured with Bette in 1978 and again, 1982 83. And you can actually find some videos of her performing on YouTube. Not too many and usually not in good resolution, but it is cool to see her there, if only for a bit. And she has said in her book and in interviews that she learned a great deal about performing music and concerts in general from Bette because this was a true show business gig. It wasn't just singing. They had to dance. They had costumes. It was a full-on production, very theatrical, and Katie got a lot of great experience out of that. Now, with that job on her resume, and also because of uh, a relationship she was in, Katie was introduced to Etta James. Now, Etta James was one of Katie's favorite singers growing up, and when Etta learned that Katie could sing, Etta brought her into her band as a backup singer, and Katie sang backup for Etta James. And it was through this connection that Katie performed her biggest gig ever, as Etta was invited to open for the Rolling Stones during their tour stop at Anaheim Stadium on July 23rd, 1978. Now, I couldn't quite pin this down, but this was either the night of or the night before the infamous shoe incident which was when a bunch of Rolling Stones fans in the front rows threw their shoes at Mick Jagger. Like there was a bunch of fans in the, in the front rows just taking off their sh shoes and whipping them at Mick. <laughs> at first he was annoyed by it, but after a while he just started laughing and encouraged the crowd to throw more at him. 
it's actually one of the funnier incidents in Rolling Stones history. I saw an interview with Keith from the 90s where he said it's one of the most memorable shows. So just out of curiosity, I looked up some old, you know, forum posts by Rolling Stones fans. And the little mention I did see of Etta's opening act was all positive. So like I was saying earlier with her Beatlemania clip, Katie now actually has a small little connection in Rolling Stones history, which I got to say is very cool. So as the 70s became the 80s, she still found some singing gigs, although nothing particularly impressive. She sang backup on the 1981 Molly Hatchet album, Take No Prisoners. I'm not 100% sure which song she sang on. I think it was this one called Lady Luck. Take a listen, see if you hear her in there. Cause she's my lady luck. She must have come from heaven Okay, so this was one of the better songs on a record as I would describe as not very good. Molly Hatchet had already lost their original lead singer at this point. This is not a particularly special album. She doesn't even mention it in her book. But hey, there you go. Peg from Married with Children was singing on a Molly Hatchet record. And a year after that, in 1982, she recorded a song called It's the Time for Love, which played over the end credits of a Chuck Norris movie called Silent Rage. Here, take a listen to that. Although I love Chuck Norris movies, I've never seen this one. I watched the trailer for it. I will tell you straight up, I have no interest in seeing this, and I probably won't watch it. But hey, if you're curious about it, there's a Katie Seagal song on the end credits, so there is there that. And I bring these last two songs up because that should sort of give you an idea of where her music career was at in the early 80s. The truth was her music career was fading. Her chances at getting her own record deal and breaking through on the music side of show business was growing slimmer and slimmer. In an effort to just pay some bills, she took some stage acting jobs in the early 80s. And from one of those jobs, she was recruited by an agent to try out for a couple of TV shows. And we're gonna get into that after the break. But right now we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna look back at some recent headlines in the world of classic rock. The segment I call Yesterday's News. It is I, your humble correspondent on the EIP Network, the Excellence in Podcasting Network, and I'm here to report to you that the song My City Was Gone by the Pretenders has finally been freed from the chains of being associated with one of the worst radio shows of all time. Talk radio blowhard Rush Limbaugh used this wonderful song for years as his program's intro music, and songwriter Chrissy Hind allowed it as her father was a fan of Rush's show. Limbaugh repaid this gracious decision in 1997 by saying, It was written by an environmentalist, animal rights wacko, and was an anti-conservative song. It is anti-development, anti-capitalist, and here I am 
going to take a liberal song and make fun of liberals at the same time. Class act is always Rush. Anyway, Hind got the last laugh as she threatened to pull the song unless Rush directed all licensing payments for it to PETA, which he immediately did. Well, now that the old gas bag is gone, maybe this song can move to its rightful place on the radio, which is regular rotation in classic rock stations on the FM side of the dial. But my family was gone. And now, an unrelated clip from The Simpsons. Now, why are we doomed to this Quimby quagmire, you ask, oh reasonable listener? Because this town is under the stranglehold of a few tie-dyed tree-huggers who would rather play hacky-sack than lock up the homeless. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, sorry about that terrible impression. And if it appears that I am dancing on the grave of Rush Limbaugh, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I'm just dancing to the sweet sound of the pretenders. And if Rush's grave just happens to be under my feet, well, hey, I can't help that. Sorry. What do you want? All right, let's move on to our next story. Tina Turner documentary coming March 27th, 2021. Okay. A documentary simply titled Tina is set to premiere on HBO and HBO Max on March 27th. It's the end of this month. This is going to be an absolute must-see for any classic rock fan or really any music fan. Tina is one of the greatest American musical artists. And if you like music documentaries, put this at the top of your list. As it turns out, Tina has also been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. That is woefully overdue. They ought to be ashamed of themselves for this one. I mean, the Rock Hall has all kinds of things they should be ashamed for, but this one is a particularly egregious snub. She should have gotten in the same year the Stones did, if you ask me. So hopefully they do right by her this year. She should have been in years ago. Hopefully they correct that. And hopefully we can uh, celebrate her induction with this awesome new documentary if you'd like to hear my thoughts on this documentary because i will be sharing them make sure you subscribe to our youtube channel just uh, a couple weeks ago i posted a vlog in which i discussed three recent rock and roll documentaries michael debar who do you want me to be gordon lightfoot if you could read my mind and jimmy carter rock and roll president i watched all three of those docs and shared my thoughts on a vlog on my youtube page and i will happily do that again for this documentary tina and also a couple of other ones that i've seen recently i'll try and uh, put together a vlog where i talk about at least three so if you're curious about that please subscribe to our youtube channel youtube.com slash c slash play that rock and roll with that Let's get back to the main story. Roseanne was a trailblazing comedy icon who created the character of an irreverent, smart-talking mom that no one had ever seen since I did it on Married with Children the year before. So that was a clip of Katie at the 2012 Roast of Roseanne Barr on Comedy Central. And I must say that before she was canceled, Hollywood has always lauded Roseanne Barr 
as being this groundbreaker for TV moms. And that's well-deserved. Roseanne absolutely was a groundbreaking show. But I have always believed that Katie deserves equal billing, equal credit on that. She kicked down the same door Roseanne did. Married with Children and Roseanne were two very different shows. But Roseanne and Katie both totally broke the mold of what a TV sitcom mom was supposed to be in the 80s and 90s. So if we're celebrating Roseanne, although nobody really is anymore, we should have been celebrating Katie all along with her. Have one without the other. Now, Katie auditioned for Married with Children in October 1986. She got the gig but she did not have any idea of how truly gigantic this show would eventually become. Married with Children, along with The Simpsons, is widely credited for launching the success of the Fox network, which, in hindsight, I guess maybe wasn't a great thing, but in any case, I mean, this was a hugely important show, and it was a hugely successful show, but you never would have guessed that if you were auditioning for it because Fox was basically an unknown at that point. And as far as my personal fandom of the show goes, I grew up watching it. Not on Fox. I grew up watching reruns of it on UPN in the early 2000s. And I absolutely loved it, and I totally, in my teen years, absolutely had a crush on Katie. <laughs> and as just a matter of coincidence, in my interview with Kristen Casey, who wrote her book about her relationship with Joe Walsh, she mentioned that her and Joe watched Married with Children in the late 80s and early 90s, and apparently Joe had a huge crush on Katie as well. So here, take a listen to my interview with Kristen Casey where she talks about Joe's fandom of Katie and Married with Children. I, I have to say, I'm glad you mentioned her because um, Joe didn't mention a lot of like uh, celebrity crushes or what? I mean, he was always a good boyfriend that way. Like, but he loved Katie Seagal. He always thought she was super hot. Joe always liked strong women, and you know, even though yeah. her character was a little despicable on Married with Children, uh, overall she was like a really outspoken woman. So oh, I think yeah. anyone who, any man who finds that attractive is that's a good sign to me. That yeah. means that's a yeah. good guy. You know who else was a big fan of Married with Children? Someone Katie was a big fan of, George Harrison. I'm not going to play a clip because there's a lot of context around it, but David Faustino, who played Bud on Married with Children, said that he met George Harrison at some point, and he found out that George Harrison was a huge fan of the show. And I think that's really cool because, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, Katie, as a young girl, clearly was a big fan of George. How cool is it that all these years later, when her acting career truly hit its stride, that George became a fan of hers? So I dig that. And if you want to hear that clip, I've posted it on the YouTube channel. So even though this show would eventually become one of the longest-running sitcoms ever, in the early years, Katie was never certain that they would be renewed for the next season. So in an effort to keep her music career alive as sort of a backup plan, she would continue to perform music in clubs and, and try to book gigs recording. She recorded a song called Loose Cannons that played over the end credits of a Gene Hackman, Dan Aykroyd movie with the same name. Here, take a listen to that song. Loose cannons, I told, return to remind you 
I hate to say it, but that is not very good. <laughs> and it's probably appropriate because the movie does not look very good either. But in any case, it was, I guess, maybe good recording practice because as her TV star rose, that gave her a little bit of leverage to get herself a new record deal. And in 1994, she was finally able to release her first proper solo album, which she titled Well, dot, dot, dot. In her book, Grace Notes, she writes, I made sure to write or co-write all of the songs on that album. I adamantly insisted on being taken seriously as a songwriter and not being seen as a TV celebrity trying to cash in with a vanity project. My music was not that. It was sincere. Given the music careers of guys like Don Johnson and Bruce Willis and David Hasselhoff and you know, so many others, I absolutely understand why she was worried about being seen like that. And yeah, to her credit, this album is not one of those silly wannabe rock star albums. This is an album full of genuine singer-songwriter material, and it's about some really personal stuff. So here's the first single from the album. This is called Can't Hurry the Harvest. You can ask yourself questions Okay, so this song is about something incredibly personal that became public, right? This was Katie dealing with a national news story that had circulated about her the year before. See, what happened was she had gotten pregnant and was really happy about it and announced it to the press and talked to the show writers on Married with Children and they actually wrote her pregnancy into the show. Well, late in her pregnancy, she miscarried. And if you read her book, it's absolutely heartbreaking. But it wasn't just personally heartbreaking. It was something that everybody knew about, too. So it was, she talks about dealing with a lot of shame. Just knowing that, like, anybody who read the, the tabloids or newspapers also sort of knew about something that really should be personal. So it, it caused her a lot of internal pain and anguish. And, and I would really recommend checking out her book if you want to learn more about it. But she did what good artists do. She channeled it into a song. She channeled it into art. And this was the song she chose to be the single, uh, the representative song of the album. So I think that was very brave of her. Now, the rest of the album sounds very similar to this. This is a, an adult contemporary singer-songwriter kind of soft rock album. Not exactly up my alley, but I will say that the production here is very nice. She did tour behind this album. Here's a clip of her on Conan in the early 90s where she talks about going on tour in Europe with Percy Sledge. And I, I went and I did a, a like a promo tour, you know. Uh -huh. I sang between an Elvis impersonator and Percy Sledge, you know, <laughs> who was like, who was lip syncing his song, you know. Yeah, it was wild. And oh, then, really? He's lip syncing? And then I got up and sang, yeah. You could have just sung to his lip sync song, then, I, too. Well, I, maybe I could have, yeah. So that's a little funny. What's not so funny is what she had to deal with when she would go and do radio interviews to promote this album. Take a listen to this interview she did in 2017 where she reflects upon uh, this aspect of the album. I made my solo record and I went on tour and um, you know I remember going to radio stations and I, I had made such um, 
careful decisions about that record. I wrote everything on it. I really wanted to be taken seriously as an artist. It was so like my dream. And I'd go to these radio stations and they'd talk like five minutes about the record and then they wanted to talk about Peg Bundy. That's really all they wanted to talk about. And so I was really, and it was a good record and I was just disheartened by it. In her book, she writes, so here I was, five years into doing the job I wasn't sure I was meant for, finally landing another record deal, finally getting another shot at the job I always wanted to do, and my accomplishment lacked the validity, the affirmation that I had longed for. My music wasn't taken seriously. The album did get good reviews, but it did not sell. And the single wasn't a hit, and she did not release another album for 10 years. The reality was she was just far too closely associated with her Peg Bundy character from Married with Children to do really much else of anything. She's talked about this. That role was a bit of a double-edged sword for a period of time because she couldn't even book other acting gigs. There weren't many shows or movies willing to take a risk on her doing something other than comedy. So she would have to wait till the show was over to try again at music. Married with Children ended abruptly in 1997, and fresh off that cancellation, she got herself another Fox gig as the voice of Leela on Futurama. Very impressive that she was able to follow up one iconic comedy role with another one. I love Futurama almost as much as I love Married with Children. So that's just a great one-two punch of comedy coming right out of the gates of her TV acting career. Well, anyway, let's get back to her music. Her second solo album was called Room, and it was released in 2004. It was produced by Bob Thiel, who would go on to work on the Sons of Anarchy soundtrack, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The single from this album was called Daddy's Girl. This song debuted on a show she was working on at the time called Eight Simple Rules. This album was not meant to be a pop success. This was always going to be sort of a a niche record. She didn't write all of the music on there, but there are some originals. And those originals are alongside some covers of artists like Stevie Wonder, Donovan, and the OJs. So I'll play you one of those cover songs. This is her take on a song called For the Love of Money, which you might recognize. Originally made famous by the OJs. Some people got to have it. Some people really need it. Again, this is another easy listening singer-songwriter record. Not really my cup of tea, but again, good production and her vocals are just incredible. Her third solo album came almost another decade later. It was called Covered. It was released in 2013, and this is a full-on covers record. Here's a clip of her on Craig Ferguson's show talking about the album. Basically, she said she has writer's block, and that's why she decided to do a covers record. Is it covers of uh, songs? It is. You know, I was, uh, I've had a couple of records out before, and I usually write everything. And then this one, I just kept writing songs I didn't like. So I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to record some other people's so fantastic songs. Free Fallen? Is that the Tom Petty song? Uh-huh. I, I love that. Tom Petty. We have a picture of Tom Petty somewhere, do? don't we? And since Craig mentions it, here's the opening track to that album. Her cover of Tom Petty's Free Fallen. 
She also records a cover of Jackson Brown's For a Dancer, and that is not the only Jackson Brown aspect to this album. Jackson actually appears as a guest and duets with Katie on a song called Goodbye. So here is Jackson Brown and Katie Seagal singing Goodbye. I only miss you every now and then Like the soft breeze blowing up from the So we're getting to the end of the show, and we really haven't heard any rock and roll, but I will say this is the first album that sort of starts to approach classic rock. It really isn't. This is much more country folk, again, singer-songwriter stuff. I kind of get an Emmylou Harris vibe from it. But if you're wondering, where's the rock and roll on a show called Play That Rock and Roll? Let me just say, relax, hold on a second, we're getting there. We're going to get into some real good old-fashioned rock and roll, finally, right after this break. We're going to take another break. This is for a segment called Back in Time, in which we take a look back at some of the biggest events in classic rock that happened in this month, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago. So Huey Lewis, please, take us back in time. Is this a 50s? by REO Speedwagon, which became a number one hit single on March 21st, 1981. I think this is the high point for both the band and also the much maligned, quote, corporate rock subgenre, along with Journeys Don't Stop Believing. I like arena rock, so I like this song and I like this band. I really can't stand when I watch rock documentaries that write off this whole era and style of music as corporate rock. It's incredibly pretentious. REO Speedwagon's a good band. I've seen them five times in concert over the years, and they're a lot of fun. This last time I saw them was in 2019 at the Wisconsin State Fair. I went with a friend of mine, and he said that the front man, Kevin Cronin, reminded him of, like, a Dana Carvey Saturday Night Live character. <laughs> and since he said that, I can never not see that. So <laughs> maybe maybe you can see that, too. All right. That same month, March 27th, 1981, Ozzy Osbourne bites the head off of two doves. This is not to be confused with his bat head biting story. What happened was, on the same day he released his debut solo record, Blizzard of Oz, Ozzy attended Epic Records' annual sales convention, and he was there to make a short speech thanking the employees on the label for all the work they had done for him. And at the end of the speech, he was supposed to release these two doves into the room as some sort of bizarre gesture of peace whatever but on the way to the event he drank an entire bottle of brandy in the limo and showed up wasted out of his mind and and unsurprisingly he became very bored as soon as he got there now to make things worse a pr rep started haranguing him about something and in an effort to basically shock her into shutting up ozzy asked her if she likes animals then grabbed one of the doves and then gruesomely bit its head off. And then he did the exact same thing to the other one. <laughs> oh my god. 
needless to say, the executives stopped harassing him that day. His manager, and now wife Sharon, got this story out into the press immediately, which of course ignited a controversy, which then increased both sales and excitement over his new solo album. And that's just perfect. To me, this whole story serves as a reminder of two things. One, despite the doddering old grandpa persona Ozzy developed on that reality show, this dude was absolutely insane in his heyday. There are so many of these crazy Ozzy stories. And that reality show he did, I think, cleaned up his reputation. It sort of made him look like an old fool, like a joke. But, like, in his prime, this man was a complete maniac. And the other thing this is a nice reminder of is that Sharon is one of the sharpest managers in music history. And she does not miss an opportunity and these two together are an absolutely lethal combination that's why ozzy's as famous as he is it's not just the music it's because he's had one of the best managers in all of show business next story march 20th 1991 eric clapton's four-year-old son falls out of a window and dies this is perhaps the most heartbreaking story in rock history if you look online, you can find some statements by Connor's mother, Lori Del Santo, as she has spoken a bit about the event. She's recounted the events, and it's horrifying. It's unimaginable to be a parent and to go through something like that. I don't know if Clapton's talked a lot about it, but he did write the famous song Tears in Heaven about it. He wrote it with songwriter Will Jennings, and that became a hit for him as part of the uh, MTV Unplugged thing. I have to ask... Is it insensitive for me to say that I don't like that song? <laughs> probably. It's probably ridiculously insensitive. So I'll tell you what, I won't focus on that. But I will say that I had a coworker when I worked at a pizza place about 10 years ago. He was an older guy, and he had also lost a child at a very young age. And he told me that this song meant a hell of a lot to him. So if you're like me, and you don't really care for this song, my comment on it would be, well, don't worry about it. Because... I guess it's not really meant for us. With that, let's get back to the main story and wrap it up. Okay, final segment. So going back to 2004, a big event in Katie's life is that she married Kurt Sutter. Kurt Sutter got his start in Hollywood as a staff writer on the FX show The Shield. And he eventually became the show's executive producer in the later series. Now, if you never saw it, The Shield was a huge success on FX. And Kurt was able to use that record of success to get his own show greenlit in 2008. And that show is, of course, Sons of Anarchy. Right into this world, all alone. God takes your soul. You're on your own A crow flat straight A perfect line Katie was cast on the show as Gemma, the mother of the main character, Jax. And this was another gigantic success. This wasn't that long ago, so you might remember, but Walking Dead and Sons of Anarchy really seemed to battle each other for headlines about setting viewer records 
not just for like cable shows, like these shows were beating network shows fairly regularly. And Sons didn't last as long as Walking Dead, but they seemed to go head to head for a, a stretch of years there. And there was a lot of people watching both. So it was really interesting to see sort of the loose connection that these two shows had. And I'll, I'll speak to that in just a little bit. The soundtrack for the TV show was recorded primarily by the show's house band, if you will, a group called the Forest Rangers. And Katie was basically a part of that band. Her first appearance on the soundtrack was on the second EP the band put out called Shelter, in which she sings Ruby Tuesday, which was originally written by the Rolling Stones. So here, take a listen to Katie Seagal singing Ruby Tuesday. So this is another fantastic vocal performance. I think it's very consistent with her earlier work, but now there's a stronger connection to rock and roll. And she would do a lot of covers like this. A year later, in 2010, the third EP for the show was released called The King Is Gone, and Katie sings a Leonard Cohen cover of Bird on a Wire. A year after that, 2011, the first proper Sons of Anarchy soundtrack album was released. Songs of Anarchy, music from Sons of Anarchy, seasons one through four. Katie sings a couple of songs on this record. There's cover of Son of a Preacher Man, which was originally by Dusty Springfield. Strange Fruit, which was originally by Billie Holiday. House of the Rising Sun, which was made famous by the animals. And that Bird on a Wire song that I mentioned just a minute ago. So let's take a listen to Katie's verse on the Forest Rangers version of House of the Rising Sun. My sweetheart, he's Songs of Anarchy Volume 2 was released in 2012. Katie sings a cover of Lulu's To Sir With Love. Songs of Anarchy Volume 3 was released in 2013. Katie shares lead vocals on a version of Everyday People, which was originally made famous by Sly and the Family Stone. And the other thing about this album, as it was released in 2013, the same year of her covered solo album, the Jackson Brown song, for a Dancer is also included on this album. And her last contribution to the soundtrack albums was on Songs of Anarchy Volume 4, released in 2015. She sang the traditional folk song, Green Sleeves. Sons of Anarchy was tremendously successful, and it warranted a spinoff, which Kurt Sutter also created. That show is called Mayans MC, and I believe it's still on now. And in one episode, Katie's character Gemma appears in a flashback, but more interesting than that, Katie contributed a song to the soundtrack for Mayans MC. She did a cover of the old Las Bravos song, Black is Black. I can't choose to songs that Katie's ever done. It sounds awesome. A great voice with a great song, really nicely done. And that's the last song I'm going to talk about today, so we're going out on a strong note. Katie is not at all done with music, however. All during her run on Sons of Anarchy, she toured and played live shows with the Forest Rangers. 
And since the show has ended, she formed a new band with some of the guys from the Forest Rangers, including Bob Thiel, who produced her second solo album, in a band called Reluctant Apostles. And Reluctant Apostles is still very much active. In November 2020, they posted a video of them performing Crystal Blue Persuasion on their Facebook page. So I'm sure Katie's not totally done with recording music. I think there's still more to come yet. As I talked about earlier, I saw Katie Seagal in concert once. It was on one of the Forest Ranger tours in 2013. It was billed as a Sons of Anarchy event at the Riverside Theater here in Milwaukee on April 19th, 2013. As a matter of coincidence, I guess, it happened just two months after the Walking Dead cast made an appearance in Milwaukee in February 2013. So it's going back to kind of what I was saying about uh, these two shows being like low-key competitors. Like, very few other shows came through town like they did. I think Sons saw what Walking Dead was doing and thought, hey, we can do that too. But I will say, the Sons event was way better. Katie appeared with Theo Rossi, who played Juice on Sons of Anarchy, and Mark Boone, who played Bobby. And I remember this was the same day that the Boston Marathon bomber was captured because Mark announced that news uh, when they came out on stage, and that got a big applause. The other stuff I remember from the event is that all of the questions were awful, and Theo Rossi, if you look him up on Google Images, is a very good-looking man, and multiple women got in line basically to ask him for dates. (laughs) And to take off his shirt and and all this sort of thing. He got a lot of attention from the women in the crowd that night. And he was visibly enjoying it. Which was both, you know, eye-roll inducing, but also pretty funny. Sadly, there were no good questions. I didn't have anything to ask. I mean, I was honestly there more to see the music. And I just, I couldn't come up with anything. But there, there just wasn't any good questions to ask. One of the questions I remember was, Who would win in a fight, Clay from Sons of Anarchy or Al Bundy? And it's just like, wow, you know, this is what we're doing, huh? Okay. Thankfully, the Q&A session was short, and Katie and the Forest Rangers performed before and after the Q&A session, so. And they were great. Uh, Curtis Steigers came out and sang the Sons of Anarchy theme song, which was very cool. I had good seats, so the band sounded great. It was so cool to see Katie perform. She was one of the first celebrities I knew I was a fan of because I loved Married with Children. So getting a chance to see her perform in person live on stage, it was awesome. It meant a lot. After the show, we went out around the side of the building where sometimes you can catch the actors on their way to their buses. And we saw her come out, and she unfortunately she didn't have time for autographs or photos or anything, but I shouted, great show, and she responded, thank you, and it was very cool. Too bad we couldn't get a photo, but she looked absolutely exhausted. (laughs) And they had just done a really high-energy, fun show. So I certainly don't blame her for wanting to get out of town. And that's about it. My final thoughts on her is that Katie is a great actor, and everybody knows that. But she's also a great musical artist, and not everybody knows that. And I think her music and her connection to music history or classic rock history should be explored more, should be discussed more, should be celebrated more. I hope I played something today the day that you enjoyed, and I would really encourage you to look up the music she has put out if you heard anything that uh, you enjoyed. I know she's a very unconventional choice for a rock and roll podcast, but 
I think she has a place in rock history. And I just wanted to celebrate some of the fun stories and some of the great music that she's been a part of over the years. Because, again, her acting career has always overshadowed her music. But she has said on so many occasions that music is her true love and her true passion. So let's celebrate that love and passion and also celebrate that work that she's done because it is really, really good. So with that, we'll call it a day. As far as what's coming up next, I've got a couple of interviews booked. I can't announce them just yet. I will wait to record them. Then I will post on our social media who they will be. So please find us on social media to see who that is going to be. Some very cool interviews coming up. The next retrospective episode will be some proper rock and roll. We're going to be talking about John Kay and Steppenwolf. So if you're a little put off by this not quite rock and roll episode, don't worry. We're going to get back to a meat and potatoes act. Steppenwolf is coming up next. I got John's book. Can't wait to read it. Oh, and by the way, no relation, okay? I'm not related to John Kay. I wish I was. (laughs) The intro song for this show is I Can Play That Rock and Roll by Joe Walsh. And I need to both recommend and cite one of my sources, which was Katie's 2017 memoirs, Grace Notes. Wonderful book, very charming and accessible. It's really just the best sort of memoirs. It's incredibly personal. And I got to say, Katie is just one of the, the women that I admire most in Hollywood. And the book did my admiration justice, I think. She, she seems like a wonderful human being. And she put together a really nice life retrospective. So if you want to learn more about her as an individual, as a person, I would really highly recommend her book, Grace Notes. And then I'd also like to give a thank you to Cher Ross and Britt Lightning from the band Vixen for the cameo we played at the start. That's always fun. Appreciate that. And finally, please don't forget the big four ways you can support this show that are free. One, listen to the show. Hey, if you're at this point already, you did it. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you for it. Now, see if you can do the second one. Two, recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly one about rock and roll or music. Three, find us on social media, at PlayThatPodcast on Twitter, Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast, and as I mentioned earlier, YouTube.com slash slash play that rock and roll it's not just episode announcements on social media i tweet every day so you can find uh, pictures and random thoughts on twitter on facebook i have photos and news stories and youtube i do vlogs and any sort of rock and roll clip that i can find that's not on youtube i'll just throw it up on the channel as well so there's a lot of extra material beyond just this podcast on the social media pages so i really encourage you to check those out and of course the last thing you can do that that really helps that's also free is that you can give us a nice rating and a positive review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts ratings and reviews help the algorithm which we all must answer to and if i read something nice that really means a lot to me so please take a moment to do just that if you do i genuinely appreciate it and it really does help the show so if you have a moment please do that and that's all i got thank you so much for tuning in i'm glad you stuck with me on this one i hope we had some fun all right one last time katie would you please play us out with something off that sons of anarchy soundtrack who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man? The only father who could ever teach me 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.